0: Now on Documentary on News Talk, producer Simon Maguire delves into the life of George Lennon, one of Ireland's most fascinating revolutionary figures, in From Rebel Leader to Peace Activist – The Making of George Lennon. As Ireland continues to reflect on its journey from free land to colony, to rebellion to statehood, George Lennon's journey mirrors this complex story. Lennon's life is truly remarkable. For eight years, between 1914 and 1922, George dedicated his life to the Irish cause. An unsung hero who became one of the youngest leaders of a flying column during the War of Independence, Lennon is known to have engaged British forces on at least 17 different occasions. The execution of RIC Sergeant Michael Hickey, a former childhood acquaintance of Lennon, following the Burgery ambush on the 18th of March 1921 highlights the complexity of Ireland's struggle throughout this period. Lennon would go on to take the anti-treaty side during the Irish Civil War and became the de facto military commander of Waterford City at the time. He surrendered in August 1922 as he did not wish to see the civilian population suffer at the hands of fellow Irishmen anymore. He would go on to emigrate to the United States and later became a dedicated pacifist and opponent of the Vietnam War and was a founding member of a Zen Buddhism centre in Rochester, New York. In between, he returned to Ireland in 1936, and went on to work for the Irish Tourist Board, but became disillusioned with the lack of progress he encountered. He married his wife, May, in July 1939, and they had one son together, Ivan, born in June 1943. George returned to America in 1946. Like many who fought during the War of Independence, George rarely spoke about his involvement he only opened up about that time when visited in America by others with whom he had served. Ivan Lennon, George's son, stumbled across his father's pension board application in 1984 and only then began to realise his father's true involvement in the struggle for Irish freedom. And, following a trip to Waterford City as part of a delegation which twinned Rochester with Waterford, Ivan discovered his father was barely known. It has been his mission ever since to bring George's story to a wider audience, and it's a story which mirrors modern Ireland's violent birth, from troublesome colony to independent state. Later in life, Lennon wrote his memoir, the title of which, Trauma in Time, gives us a glimpse into the mind of one of Ireland's greatest rebel leaders. But before I delve into Lennon's life, I was joined by Eunan o'halpin Professor Emeritus of Modern Irish History at Trinity College Dublin, at the Irish National War Memorial Gardens on the banks of the River Liffey, to discuss the national temperature as we continue to commemorate a decade of centenaries across the island.
1: I think the national temperature has changed and the political climate has changed very considerably since, in particular, 2016. Now, from from a a slightly cynical point of view, from the state's point of view, 2016 was the big hump to be got over. There was the question of of how uh, contemporary Republicans would or wouldn't engage, of of whether the state would be accused of neglecting Ireland's revolutionary history or of whitewashing it. There's the question of, of, of not offending a unionist opinion, for example, of not having a triumphalist commemoration. There are all these difficulties. And I think once 2016 went pretty well, Collectively, mainstream Ireland sort of sat back and said, thank God for that. In terms of, the, of commemoration, uh, one can say, well, we should remember everybody, and uh, that's what I would say, and we should try to understand the circumstances of each death. Uh, but different groups of descendants, different political groupings, will, will have other ideas. Uh, a prime example is, of course, the, the Kilmichael ambush in, in Cork in November 1920, where some people argue that it would be, only be right... Uh, to remember, not to validate, but to remember the, the auxiliaries and the RRC man who died uh, at the Carmichael ambush and one who was killed a day later. Uh, others would say, no, no, you must only remember those who, who, who fought for Ireland and in particular the three men, uh, well, two men and a youth, a 16-year-old, uh, who died uh, during the ambush or just after it. Um, and uh, my view is that uh, different groups can do their commemorations, different family groups can do them in different ways, but nobody has an inclusive ownership of any uh, dead person arising from Irish political violence. On my own family side, my my great-uncle Kevin Barry, uh, who was executed the 1st of November 1920, now there would be many different uh, versions of his fate, and many different interpretations of it. Um, I have mine, which I just written about in a book called Kevin Barry, an Irish rebel in life and death. Uh, But other people will read his life very differently and will will argue uh, quite passionately in a completely contrary direction. Uh, And um, they will seek to commemorate him. For example, uh, there's a a Republican land in in Scotland named after him and so on, uh, which wouldn't be uh, nowadays my idea of, of how his name should be used. But I don't object to them using it because it's none of my business. Uh, we don't own the dead. Sometimes in Ireland and elsewhere, uh, in, in terms of looking backwards, uh, people attempt to assert sort of exclusive ownership of a relative or of somebody from the same movement, be it the IRA, uh, be it the police, be it the military. But we, we don't exclusively own the people who are gone in terms of their reputations and their memories and even their, even their commemorations.
0: And on that note, how should we remember George Lennon? From my own research, he appears to be one of the most interesting characters to have taken part in the Irish War of Independence, yet he is barely known in his own county. Were his heroic actions silent because he married a Protestant and later converted to Buddhism? It looks that way, but all I can do is present the evidence and let the listener come to their own conclusion. As for George, his early life set him on his revolutionary way, as his son Ivan recalls.
2: Well, actually, it goes back to 1905. His mother took him to an exhibit in Limerick regarding Patrick Sarsfield. And at age five, he saw Patrick Sarsfield's sword and his bloody greatcoat. And some eight years later, when he uh, joined the Fina Aaron, coincidentally established by two Protestants, Markovitz and uh, Wilmer Hobson, he wrote an essay for Fina Aaron, uh, a contest, national competition. And he won the competition, uh, of course, based on Patrick Sarsfield and Bally Medi. And in a little more militaristic vein, uh, he, along with his buddy, circa 1913, built what I maintain as one of the first improvised explosive devices of the 20th century when they exploded a, a bomb along the, uh, the seacoast uh, in Dungarvan. He used to say he got into trouble for that with his parents and also with the members of the RIC. But that was, uh, you know, I think the interest in Sarsfield led to the interest in becoming an active member in Fina Aaron. And it was in the following year, in October, November, that the Irish Volunteers were established in Garvin by the local postal clerk, P.C. Omani. And uh, George, at age 14, was appointed adjutant, which would be administrative assistant, you know, at age 14. That always raised the question in my my mind of why I appoint a 14 year old. Well, probably because he represented, you know, an element in the town that was not. Active in Republican circles because he came from a very wealthy family. You know, they were upper bourgeois, run into gasworks. And then, fast forward to 1916, George and Pax Whalen stopped a train outside Bengarvin in a futile search for arms. They didn't find the arms. And subsequently, I found that Pax in the 1930s submitted a request for the 1916 medal on behalf of he and George. And since no pension
0: credit had been granted to either of the men, uh, no 1960 medal was ever granted to the two men. George went on the run in 1917. He could afford to do so due to his wealthy family background. However, he would contract Spanish flu during this period, which he would continue to feel the effects of in later life, as his son Ivan details.
2: George was also incarcerated at a very young age. He was incarcerated in Ballybrick and for stealing a soldier's rifle, a soldier who had returned from the Great War and leave. and He and Pax Whalen stole the rifle, and George was put in jail at age 17. And his mother uh, perjured herself and said it couldn't have happened because he was at home studying for a mercantile exam, which, of course, was an outright lie. But that got him out of jail at age 17. And then roughly for the next year, 1918, 1919, he was on the run until he was captured. Coincidentally, this was the time of the great pandemic, so-called Spanish influenza of 1918, 1919. He was sent off where he joined up with Sean Moylan at the court Mail jail. And he celebrated his 19th birthday at Mail Jail on May 26, 1919. And two days later, he was released, uh, suffering from Spanish influenza. Sean Moylan was also released at the same time, suffering from you know, that pandemic. And it took George for some three months to uh, recuperate. And of course, it was in January of 1919 that the ambush occurred, at Sully Hedbeg, led by Tracy, Dan Breen, and others, and that's generally cited as the, as the onset of, of, of the War of Independence. He was involved with uh, interfering with British administration for the latter part of 1919. And then in September 7, 1919, he was involved in the first attack on British uh, forces post-1916. And that was the famous attack led by Liam Lynch at the uh, Methodist Chapel in, uh, in Fermoy. Then, in order to gain experience, uh, Liam Lynch sent him up to uh, East Limerick and West Limerick, where he was involved in one of the fiercest in the summer of 19—or it was in May of 1920 on the fiercest barracks attacks at Kilmallock. And uh, that was actually the inception of the Flying Columns, because the men in East Limerick and West Limerick were forced to go on the run for the first time. And this, of course, they became known as Active Service Units or Flying Columns. And also in that summer of 1920, while he was away from Dungarvan, he assisted in the formation of the famed uh, North Cork flying column. Moylan, of course, had been released uh, from Cork Mail jail roughly the same time as my father, suffering from the Spanish pandemic. So it was in the late summer of 1920 that the day flying column was formed of some 12 men. Eventually, it was
0: enlarged at the time of the truce in July 1921 to some 42 members. The Tay Valley in the Cumberland Mountains acted as the base of operations for the West Waterford Flying Column. From there they could strike at targets near Dungarvan, Kilma Thomas, Ardmore, and others across the county before vanishing back into the relative safety provided by the secluded terrain where British forces struggled to follow or locate them. Life in the column wasn't easy, it was cold, mucky and the men suffered from malnutrition which would be expected from living in such conditions. The column formed in October 1920 and a list of the original members includes George Lennon, Pat Keating, Mick Mansfield, Jim Prendergast, Hakeem Whelan, Sonny Cullinan, Nipper McCarthy, Jim Lonergan, Paddy Joe Power, George Kiley, Bill Foley and John Reardon. Reardon was of particular importance to the column. He fought in France with the Royal Irish Regiment before being wounded. He was later posted to Egypt. Not everyone who returned from the First World War was so lucky. Jim Fitzgerald, a traumatised former conic ranger who fought in France and Mesopotamia, withdrew from society on his return to Ireland. Lacandara Jim, as he was later known, lived in a dugout in the Cummerha Mountains until his death in 1959, a pattern of behaviour later witnessed in some Vietnam War veterans in America. For his part, Reardon's military training and experience became invaluable to the Flying Column. He had been working with the men since mid-1919, meaning they were moulded into an effective tactical unit before the official formation of the unit in late 1920. They were poorly armed early on, but that all changed after an ambush at Pilltown Cross in November 1920. Terry O'Reilly, author of Rebel Heart, George Lennon, Flying Column Commander, describes the early days of the column.
3: Their base of operations, or their refuge rather, was from uh, the Tay Valley, deep in the Calmer Mountains. Even today, this is very hard to access. So back then, it it formed a real stronghold for them. By October 1920, a significant military build-up had begun in Washford County. Until early 1920, there had only been a caretaker force manning the barracks in Washford City. By October, 300 British troops had deployed to Washford City, 150 more to Dungarvan, and other small outposts throughout the west of the county. To begin with, the Flying Column's uh, store of weapons was paltry. They had four obsolete rifles and a small number of shotguns. Most of the column members didn't even have decent boots. Most of them were wearing shoes, which were repaired regularly, gratis, by a sympathizer in Kilnock Thomas. There were other issues as well that affected uh, the men of the Flying Column on the the move, not least the fact that a harsh winter was already on the way. On the 1st of November, 1920, the West Watford flying column carried out an ambush at Piltown, which was to prove a turning point in the War of Independence in West Waterford. On that date, a carefully planned ambush went into action. The main advisor was a combat veteran, John Reardon. An ambush was prepared uh, near Old Piltown, also known as Kinsale Bank, on the road between Yaw and Dartmoor. A diversionary attack was made on the RIC barracks in Dartmoor, and they called for help by firing flares into the air. Quickly, the British garrison in Yale, members of the Hampshire Regiment, responded by sending a truck full of 20 troops. When they reached the ambush point, they were attacked, engaged, and the IRA successfully overcame a superior force. As a result, the West Whartford Flying Column captured 20 superbly Enfield rifles, a quantity of ammunition, some pistols, some flares, and a hand grenade. From now on, the West Whartford Flying Column was a well-equipped force.
0: The successful ambush at Pilltown Cross in November 1920 meant the West Waterford Flying Column were a well-armed unit and could continue their campaign across the county. Even in 1920 British propaganda was in full flow. 22 men took part in the Pilltown Ambush, but British officials at Parkgate Street in Dublin released the following statement about the incident which read On receipt of information last night that Ardmore Police Barracks had been attacked and set on fire, a relief party of one officer and 10 other ranks left the aisle in a motor lorry for Ardmore. They ran into an ambush where the road had been blocked and fire was opened on them by about 120 civilians. One soldier was killed and two wounded, the rest were disarmed and the lorry captured. By this time flying columns were operating across the island, ambushing British forces, disrupting communications and essentially sustaining the war of independence. However, life on the run wasn't as glamorous as we might like to believe. As Dr. Helene O'Keefe from University College Cork explains.
4: There was definitely a certain amount of prestige involved with column membership, but the reality of the often very brutal existence was far from the romanticised image of flying columns that's been perpetuated through romantic heroic biographies or ballads or local traditions. They saw action in joint operations with local battalions and in independent actions like ambushes and arms raids, But really, most of their time was spent either lying in wait for the enemy or studiously avoiding them. And also, of course, the very important job of simply surviving. Survival meant evading British forces by moving constantly between safe areas, guided and guarded by local volunteers, billeted among the local community, and nursed and provisioned by members of Common man. As well as extreme levels of personal commitment, the danger of reprisal attacks in their families, They also had to deal, of course, with the paucity of arms and ammunition and the very real hardships of of life on the run. The military service pension files are really wonderful sources in this regard. Applicants recorded the long-term effects of sleeping in dugouts or in the open in old weathers, often unable to get regular meals or a change of clothes for weeks at a time. And then in the shorter term, conditions like chest infections or foot infections or NITs actually were very prevalent. The guys would have been sleep-deprived and deficiencies in their diet too would have led to anemia and also scabies. Actually, that condition was so common it was referred to as the Republican itch. The support of the local community, of course, was vital to their survival. Lennon's men who operated in the often inhospitable Comer Mountains were sheltered and fed by sympathetic families in the brigade area. Some of the Waterford men actually remembered the home of the Power family in Gary Duff, and said it was so good for a meal that they nicknamed it the Gresham. The great thing about the Decade of Centenaries is that it's prompted a wave of new research, particularly at local level, that helps us to form a clearer picture of what it was like to be part of a column. The new research, of course, and the new archives, gives us a sense of the importance of common man to the survival of these fine columns. The women collected money, they carried dispatches, they stored arms, they nursed, and they fed the volunteers in the run. Often at extreme personal risk.
0: Despite living on the run and using different tactics to that of a conventional army, the mere existence of the flying columns around the island meant they were a constant menace, which the British struggled to overwhelm, despite their advantages in weaponry and sheer numbers. And, while great pride is taken in the men who served in these columns, it's important to challenge the way in which they are remembered. As Dr O'Keefe reflects...
4: It is important to commemorate the vital role of the flying columns in the latter phase of the War of Independence, but it's also important to challenge the romanticised myth of the noble band of brothers of the ballads and stories. This was a dirty war, and there was appalling violence on both sides. Some column men took a hand not just in ambushes and arms raids, but were also involved in kidnappings, in executions, and in the coercion and intimidation of local civilians many had to deal with the trauma of that involvement in their lives afterwards. Their existence was unglamorous, but absolutely essential to an army lacking in every weapon of war. Even though column activity varied widely across the country, and only a small minority were able to pull off successful ambushes in 1921, their very survival paid propaganda dividends for Sinn Féin. As long as they existed, the flying columns represented a massive challenge to the British state, out of all proportion, really, to their military capacity.
0: As well as at Piltown Cross, the West Waterford Flying Column carried out attacks with varying degrees of success at Browns Pike, Kappa, Durrow Rail Station and Pickardstown. However, one ambush in particular was to shape George Lennon's life more than he could have imagined at the time. The Burgery Ambush which took place on the 18th and 19th of March 1921 when a convoy of British soldiers and two vehicles were attacked. The Column captured Captain Thomas two soldiers. And RIC Sergeant Michael Hickey. Their vehicles were destroyed and the soldiers were released. Michael Hickey would not be so lucky. George Lennon later wrote I and Thou, a play in one act, where he gives us his take on the last moments of Michael Hickey's life. Narrated by Shane Hannon, with George's son Ivan reading his father's lines, here is I and Thou.
5: The night action has been indecisive on all sides, Both the partisans and the enemy soldiers have got mixed up in the night's darkness and have scattered in all directions. The partisan officer is walking back and forth outside the priest's house, the agreed reassembly point. His patience is almost given out when a squad of his men come tiredly up the country road. They surround a prisoner. He restrains his curiosity until they come up. We
0: ran a bunch of them to ground. We hunted them down and they surrendered. We released the regulars, but we had to take him. Ah, it is him.
2: He is very windy. He knows he is for it. It would be hard for us to release him?
5: Release him? Of course not. It would be the end of us all, and our homes. The police sergeant, Constable Hickey, is a powerfully built man, but he seems to have shrunk into his bottle-green uniform. He looks by no means ill-natured, but his face now is a sallow yellow tinge, and his lips are white. He has the look of the deepest sadness, if not despair.
1: Call the priest.
5: One of the men knocks loudly on the door of the priest's house. The priest opens the door with a frightened look and goes back to dress. They all wait in silence. A cold morning mist seeps around and drips from the bare hawthorn branches. The priest comes out into the forbidding morning wearing a stole and carrying a prayer book.
2: Father, get this man a full glass of whiskey, then hear his confession.
5: The pale young priest re-enters his house and returns after a moment with a tumbler full of whiskey. One of the partisans takes the glass from him and partisans takes it up to the prisoner. Drink this. The police sergeant takes the glass unsteadily and gets the liquid down in a number of gulps. Then the priest takes him gently by the arm and leads him to his doorstep where they both sit down. The priest places his hand affectionately on the sergeant's arm and hears his confession. When they have finished, the others wait uneasily for the moments are pregnant. The officer makes a signal and the priest takes the prisoner's arm to assist him up. As they pass the officer, the prisoner looks appealingly at him, but the officer averts his eyes. They all force themselves into motion. The clergyman is holding the prisoner's arm, and he is speaking words of consolation into his ear. They walk back the Boreen, with the partisan officer bringing up the rear. He is very disturbed, but he conceals his unhappiness. A sharp turn in the by-road, a gateway leading into a field. The partisan officer goes ahead, opens the rusty gate, and they all file in. The officer leads the prisoner out in the field and affixes a label on front of his tunic. Written on the label are the words, Police Spy. Then the partisan leader whips a handkerchief from his pocket. The file of men slam the bolts of their rifles with an uneven clatter. The partisan officer moves close to the sergeant, with the bandage in his hand. George, I knew you as a child.
0: You used to play with the head constable's children in the barracks.
5: Yeah. You're the only person in the
2: world who can save me. I would give anything anything in the world to save you,
5: but I cannot. They are alone, quite alone, and helpless. In that instant, the policeman sees their awful situation. A glance of understanding and deep affection passes between them. The sergeant squares his shoulders and stands straight to attention. The officer quickly ties the bandage over the man's eyes, steps back, drops his arm, and calls, fire. The morning silence of the Glen is shattered. The dead man sways on his feet an instant, slowly inclines and falls rigidly on his left side, his head amongst the ferns. The officer draws his luger, bends down and fires into the man's temple. The priest clasps his hands before his face and runs back towards his house, his shoulders shaken with sobs. The partisan officer looks down at the erstwhile enemy, who is now an enemy no more. His turmoil is calmed. He makes a sign to his men and they go quickly off.
0: The police sergeant lies peacefully amongst the withered ferns. The execution of Michael Hickey troubled George Lennon for the rest of his life. In many ways, this seminal moment is a symbol of the complexity of Ireland's struggle for freedom a friend killing a friend. And it would act as a precursor as Ireland eventually descended into a brutal civil war. Lennon was disgusted that the peace talks with Britain took place in London and not in a neutral venue. He would take the anti-treaty side during the Civil War and became the de facto military commander of Waterford City for a time. He later surrendered after becoming appalled at the tactics fellow Irishmen were using against one another. George emigrated to the United States in 1927 and worked for the Prudential Insurance Company and later at the Pennsylvania Hotel in Manhattan. He lived through the Great Depression of the 1930s and was a card-carrying member of the American Communist Party for a short time. He became a citizen of the United States in April 1934. He returned to Ireland after the Irish Parliament passed the Military Service Pensions Act in the same year, which provided a pension for those who fought on the anti-treaty side during the Civil War. Pro-treaty veterans had been provided for since 1923 by the Army Pensions Act. Amongst other roles, George would work for the Irish Tourist Board for a time, who became frustrated with the lack of ambition shown in the organisation. He returned to America in 1946 and worked a number of jobs including as a janitor and then a shipping clerk at the Kodak factory in Rochester. He befriended Chester Carlson, the inventor of the photocopier, and one of the richest men in America at the time. Lennon was vehemently opposed to the Vietnam War, and eventually turned to Zen Buddhism as he tried to make sense of his life. George Lennon's search for meaning took him down various religious routes, from the Unitarians to the Quakers, as his son Ivan told me as we chatted one afternoon over Skype. But it was the practice of Zen Buddhism which Lennon settled on, and he became a founding member of the Rochester Zen Centre in 1966. Unfortunately, due to the COVID-19 pandemic, I was unable to travel to Rochester to meet Ivan or to see where George practised. I caught up with Roshi Bowden co the the and Director of the Rochester Zen Centre, who told me about the early days of the centre and discussed why George Lennon may have turned to Buddhist practices in later life. What well, we now call the Rochester Zen Centre... Uh,
6: was one of only two Zen centers in the United States in the, in the mid-1960s. Um, it started with uh, a small group of mostly women. Those were our, our 20 founding members. And uh, uh, they, were, they in- invited uh, Philip Kaplow. Philip Kaplow had studied. He's an American who had uh, trained in Zen in Japan for uh, some 13 years and he was coming back to the United States. They invited him to come to Rochester, and uh, he did. Then that was the birth of uh, the Rochester Zen Center. It started off uh, in a, just a house in the city here. And then it, it was. this was during the Zen boom of the mid-60s, mid and late 60s, when uh, people were really drawn to Zen practice. So we had a lot of people flooding in, mostly young people in their 20s. Then we had had a lot of growing pains. We moved to a much bigger facility in the city. And then uh, over the years, uh, many years later, uh, we uh, built a country retreat center. But back then, in George Lennon's time, it was was quite small. In some way, people who uh, convert uh, to to Zen or Buddhism is because people are dissatisfied with their own religion or their lack of religion. I I myself hadn't hadn't had no religious upbringing, but uh, dissatisfaction brings us to a teaching or a practice like Zen. It can be personal suffering, um, it can be concern about the world more broadly, concern for others' welfare. But I think when, when in the end it's it's a searching um we come to zen because it's a practice it's not a belief system it's a practice it's a method of meditation and it's a way to search the mind to search our nature um we may not even know what we're searching for when we come to zen but uh, in the end what, it, what the promise is that it's a way to come to terms with life and death to come to terms with uh, a reality That is beyond the the reaches of our ordinary mind. Uh, That's that's I think is a very very common thing. That somehow people who come to Zen uh, recognize that that there's more to reality than they can we can access through our ordinary mind. And then that what, what that opens up is the possibility of a greater understanding of the world of life and death and reality and and ourselves, of course. You know, in the mid-60s, uh, our country was just uh, in flames uh, with social disorder, disruption. There was the Vietnam War. I think a lot of us in the mid-60s came to the Zen Center because of these, um, these great disruptions in our institutions. Uh, the Vietnam War, uh, civil rights, um, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. It was a time of, of great questioning, uh, which at the time we thought was was sort of just the way things were. But we haven't seen until recently. I think now we're uh, facing a great disruption in our in our in our country. Uh, but at that time, it was the same thing. There was a lot of questioning, and and I can imagine. And and the questioning is about basic things like uh, war and peace and and uh, Zen is a a non-dualistic religion. I mean, in a way, it isn't even a religion. There's no God concept, but uh, it's a religion or a practice, let's put it that way, practice that offers a way to see beyond uh, dualism, beyond good and bad and right and wrong and and the whole structure of us and them and tribalistic impulses. And uh, that, that I think, was a big factor. maybe a factor that might have
0: brought George Lennon to practice uh, at the centre. Hugh Curran, a lecturer in Peace and Reconciliation Studies at the University of Maine, knew George during his time at the Rochester Zen Centre. He paints a picture of a man who may have finally found peace in old age.
7: I met George uh, in Rochester, New York in, uh, let's see, it would be 1967. Uh, uh, I was uh, moving down from Canada at the time, I joined the monastic group and then, where um, I was with uh, Philip Caplow, so I was his first monastic, and uh, George would uh, be there uh, almost on a daily basis at the time, because the first house we were in was this relatively small house, but uh, there was only two of us uh, there to kind of look after the, the building, and you uh, uh, run errands and do the cooking and cleaning and all of that sort of thing. So George would be uh, driving me around and come in and help out. And and then, of course, uh, it was a great pleasure to find out that he was Irish with his thick brogue. And uh, and I was Irish from Donegal. We left when I was quite fairly young, but George has continued to have, uh, of course, his, uh, his very thick Irish brogue. So I became uh, good friends with George very quickly. And uh, and the over a period of the next uh, several years to go to visit George at his home uh, out by the lake and uh, see him uh, probably, you know, several times a week for quite a while, for probably a couple of years. And then it would slow down because we had so many other people coming to help out to become monastics and so on. So, but George, I went to see him, uh, uh, as I said, uh, phone phone him, talk to him, relate to him. So he was a kind of a friend uh, I would say even a mentor. Uh, he just seemed to have a this uh, quiet, but he just had a very uh, charming way of relating and responding, and and uh, soft and uh, and easygoing, uh, and always uh, a story to tell if the occasion demanded it. And then I'd go out with his wife um, May, his Ivan's mother, and she was also part of the little group see regularly when we went, to, went out there to their place.
0: George rarely spoke about his involvement in the Irish War of Independence, as his son Ivan told me on numerous occasions. However, it appears attending the Rochester Zen Centre opened that door which allowed George to talk about the trauma he suffered early in his life.
7: He did talk about it uh, and he gave me a book that he had written at the time. Uh, I don't think Ivan had seen it at the time. But he gave me a, a book. he didn't ask me to actually look it over. Uh, he'd written it a kind of a, a fiction form, and uh, and I thought of it as fiction. But only realized later on that it was uh, real, uh, real events. I think it was about the shooting uh, that he had to, was involved with with a fellow named Hickey, I believe. And uh, so yes, he did tell me uh, in kind of indirectly. He didn't, uh, he didn't. But my father also came to visit the. Uh, a couple of times, and I would bring him to see George. My father was from the same background in Donegal, um, same history, IRA background, and so on. So uh, there was all of that kind of underlying um, back and forth that we had uh, many things in common in that way. But so he did talk about his past, uh, but not like explicitly in more uh, elliptically, kind of roundabout way. He would respond to my questions and so on about it, but it, I think it was hard for him actually to talk about it, uh, and so he wouldn't he wouldn't make a big point of it. And I wasn't really curious because a lot of the uh, you know I'd grown up in circles and uh family and so on, where which uh, re- avoiding painful subjects was very common, and um, not talking about it was more often the case than talking about it. It was elliptical in the sense that, like my father would uh, do the same as George would go on talk about people he knew who had been involved with the skirmishes and the
6: uh,
7: and the, the violence and the troubles, uh, but it would be this kind of softened down. It wouldn't be a kind of a brutal talk at all. So George George was that way, uh, much softer and direct. It's obviously a lot of pain, and the the meditation practice and Vedanta and the Zen Buddhist were. Uh, almost as if he was uh, trying to get through, the like me, trying to get over the painfulness of so many of these subjects, buried subjects uh, from the Irish uh, past and the
0: troubles. And with that in mind, how did George Nanon spend his final years? And what influence did he have on those around him?
7: Uh, George was uh, trying to, uh, it was almost like he was uh, reliving again uh, his uh, trying to break from the past, and yet not able to, very much like myself and my father, but trying to break through ground on a spiritual, religious, uh, you know, intellectual level, trying to understand the past he was doing it by writing. I was doing hit by my meditation practice, uh, trying to break from a lot of raw memories. And so he was, in many respects, he, was, he had turned to the contemplative, you could say, to the spiritual, uh, the mystical uh, uh, in, in his own way, and uh, and I think that was his way of breaking, not breaking from the past, but trying to understand it from a new perspective. And that's what we were both doing, I would say. And then trying to see it from that maybe a more Eastern perspective, or more maybe karmically linked, you could say, perspective. It was just trying to make sense of the past, the emotional past, the spiritual past. And trying to also, both. I think, were raised in Catholicism, but then he had moved away from it. I flirted with it over and over again, and he uh, had gone through his own um, shift, and and I think that was uh, his way of trying to break from, from the past as well. He was really trying to practice what I'd say, the, the Gandhian kind of thing of uh, uh, karmic yoga, I would call it. Do penance, as you say, in a tone for the past uh, in some way, and, and trying to work for the goodness uh, in, in that way, and doing his practice in his. Involvement with our organization, the then organization was Vedanta, was kind of the positive way, and then at the same time, maybe the writing I would say was his exploration and atonement for the past. So one is the atone for the background and the history, and then the other is to try to forge ahead spiritually and intellectually, you could say, and, and forge ahead into a kind of a new, a new way of seeing. And so, and Rochester is a good place that's <laughs> got a lot of interesting history of. Uh, African-American, going so on, breaking from the past, trying to see freshly into the into the future. So yes, it was a very good place for that. So uh, I think George was, in the end, uh, the fact that he lived a, such a long life indicates that he, he was uh, successful in many ways, and uh, I think he was a good, you know, his goodness and his generosity were always there. He, he just seemed to me to be instinctively good-hearted, generous-spirited. Uh, open-minded, and he was not intimidated by people of wealth or power. Uh, never bent the knee to anybody. Uh, he would put them on, a, on, you know, on an equal level to him. And board meetings, much more where I would be young and subject myself to their supposed wisdom of the uh, older and wealthier. He wouldn't. He would challenge people, he, and everybody would listen to him. There was a board of pretty really strong, uh, forceful people, and they would. He would say something, and it'd give pause. And they said to be some. It's like, oh, George said this. This uh, must have some relevance or importance, so that sort of thing. And uh, he was lovable. Put it that way, people uh, loved him not as an eccentric person, but just uh, his personality and the feel, of feeling that there was something uh, deep in what he said. There was some experiential in what he said. And he, but he, and he wouldn't speak that much. But when he did, it seemed always to carry weight, and it always had a meaning. He was always solicitous, always sympathetic. He would listen to our complaints, and uh, I was complaining kind of bitterly about my teacher, Captain Philip Caffle at the time over his, you know, character flaws, <laughs> more than a few. And, of course, I had my character flaws, but George would just listen, and he wouldn't make any comments. Uh, I said, oh, well, you've got to put up with a lot of things in life and that sort of thing. You know, he would, he would uh, give me a little solicitous advice, and very quietly, and, without being forceful or sounding didactic or anything like that, just easy going. He was uh, just a bright light in my life. He was a great, great light in my life. I don't know if I would have survived being a monastic there, um, without him, without his, his presence and his, uh, his helpfulness and his, uh, general demeanor. So he kind of taught by his behavior, his example, and his, uh, in a, in a very quiet, quiet way. And, uh, so it was a great uh, great thing to have him around, to have come down from uh, Toronto at the time to Rochester as a you know, 20-year-old, 21-year-old, and, and be able to uh, have somebody like him there was made a huge difference in my life. And, uh, and I've always felt uh, a profound friendship with him. Uh, I even think of him on a regular basis. I actually have his ashes. <laughs> I have some of his ashes that I... Uh, Ivan kept and gave me some. He uh, gave me the whole tin of uh, his ashes, and I had the potter, a neighbor, make uh, a make containers for them, uh, very beautifully done, wrought in a good, uh, very masterly potter's way. His name, his dates, and so on, and sent one of the small containers back to Rochester for the Zendo to keep. Sent her there to keep on the altar, and as well as one to Ivan and one to myself. So we divided up his ashes three ways. So a way of kind of revering his memory, and I have I can look at his little pot with his name and his ashes and his dates right here within sight of me, right here in my place of name. So it was a wonderful to, uh, that the memory continues, of course. And um, the photos, I always have a photo of him here and there around the house. And uh, so his memory is very strong. I can go for walks, I'll remember him. Up we're living near a cemetery and. I will always uh, keep him in mind when I'm going near the cemetery. His name will come into my memory, just like my father. So, uh, so he was among the, I would say, quiet influences, mentor influences on my life. Not, not a mentor as a teacher, a verbal teacher, but more by example and quiet, uh, quiet demeanor and someone who shared such a rich part of my own history and tradition. So there's a, one could go on about George. who was this, he left him um, left embedded his memories deeply embedded in my mind, and uh, and he's one of the great. Uh, I would say one of the most important people in my life. I, I number uh, five or six or seven people in my life that are most influential. He's certainly among those.
0: George Lennon's transformation from rebellious revolutionary to pacifist mirrors modern Ireland's journey in many ways. The Irish Volunteers went on to form the National Army, and later joined the UN Peace Corps. And since 1958, not a day has passed without an Irish soldier deployed under a UN flag somewhere around the world, meaning Irish participation in United Nations peacekeeping operations represents the longest unbroken record of any nation in the world. As for Ivan, what has it meant to him to have a revolutionary figure in his family? Looking back on my father's career from 1916,
2: in 1923, George, well, actually, throughout his life, he was always a, a minority within a minority. Going back to the uh, the split in the volunteers in 1914, when most of the Irish volunteers went with Redmond, some 95 percent of them went with Redmond and supported uh, his position with regard to the Great War. But my father was uh, part of a very small minority of physical force men, perhaps only five percent of the volunteers, who elected, you know, to go. Republican way. And I guess you could say that uh, throughout his his life, he was not afraid to adopt a a minority position, whether it was dealing with uh, the American position in Vietnam, the Roman Catholic Church in Ireland. And uh, I think this shows what a committed few men with history on their side can accomplish. Because I think that a lot of people forget that during the troubles, during the guerrilla struggle nineteen nineteen and nineteen twenty-one, at no time were there more than one thousand trained guerrilla fighters on the in the flying columns. And I think Sean Moylan put it very well when he said that these men dared to pit their puny strength against the might of an empire.
0: From Rebel Leader to Peace Activist, the making of George Lennon was written and narrated by Simon Maguire, produced by Simon Maguire and Susan Cahill, with an original score composed by Scott Tobin. The programme was supported by a grant from the Broadcasting Authority of Ireland, funded by the Television Licence Fee.